This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore. Tune in as we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to today's episode. Hi, I'm Peter Hoffman, Professor of Business at James Cook University, Singapore, and I'm your host for this episode of JCU Conversations. Our guest today is Professor May Tan Mullins. Professor Tan Mullins is the Dean International of James Cook University. Her responsibilities include leading the development and implementation of an internationalization strategy for James Cook University in Singapore. This is to forge a stronger relationship with JCU's Australian campuses and to deliver a meaningful transnational education experience. She's also the university's chief sustainability officer and drives the university's sustainability efforts. Welcome, May, and thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Peter. Very happy to be here. Okay, May, you've had quite some senior leadership roles in in education. And of course, before that, also academically were involved in education. So is the education sector something you've always been interested in to join? Yeah, Um, very, very good and interesting question. Uh, In fact, education is not my first choice. When I graduated from, from the university, my first job was actually in the government sector, but very much dealing with training. And then after a year at the government sector uh, in the Ministry of Manpower at then in Singapore, I realized that it was a little bit bureaucratic and not really to my style in terms of getting things done quickly and efficiently. So I left the government sector and went into a private sector as a consultant in a consultancy firm called Strategic Intelligence. It was very interesting at that time because then you work with very top-level CEOs trying to provide very strategic advice to them in terms of investments, in terms of geopolitics, etc., etc. However, that was the dot-com era and the dot-com bust. And as a result, within a year, the company fall as well. So I spent one year in government, one year in private sector, and then I went to a non-profit organization. I was with an organization in Switzerland for a year looking at conflict resolution. And after trying out different sectors in three different jobs, I realized that my passion was really about research and travel. So I said, why don't I just go back to NUS and do a master's degree in geography? And very luckily, I was, uh, I've got a scholarship. And subsequently, within half a year, they convert me to a full-time PhD student with a full scholarship as well. And that's where I really start to dive into the higher education of not just research, but, but also educating the next generation. Uh, and I'm very good at administration as well. So I, I was quite happy with this uh, sector. And in terms of the kinds of things that I could do, I could travel, I could research, I could educate the next generation. And I've been here since 20 years then. Very interesting. So you've been in the private sector, you've worked for government, and now, let's say, for a couple of decades, you're already in education. Yes. So what would you say are the key things that single out education that are make it more interesting uh, compared to the private sector and um, government? Yeah, I think... think First, just now I already illustrated mm-hmm. uh, the education, higher education sector is very interesting because there's a variety of jobs 
that you have to do, you have to multitask, but they're mm. all very interesting. Um, that's the research part where you get to talk to people, meet people, put a lot of analytical skills to come up into the, res uh, to, into the research and write reports, which then inform the way in terms of how to address global challenges or issues that's currently happening. So that's one part. And then obviously the research part also involves travel and traveling is very interesting because you go to new places, you meet new people and you experience new culture, which then again, you know, give you that ideas, new ideas to come up with new framework, new thinking, which is very, very important. And then you have the teaching part. I would say that interacting with students is really one of my most favorite part of my job. Um, partly because it's it's very, very fulfilling when you teach a student, when you educate, you work with them, you see how they can go from zero to something like 150%. And the change from when you first met them until they graduate, it's very, very fulfilling because you can see the impact, you know, in terms of the transfer of knowledge, in terms of the experience of engaging with that student actually has shaped and more the students and the outcomes as well. So that's really the most fulfilling part for me. And obviously you have the administration. A lot of academics, they don't like the administration part. But for me, I'm quite lucky uh, because I do well in three areas, all three areas. I'm very good with administration as well, partly because I'm quite a systematic and structured person. I, I have very logical thinking based a lot on evidence in terms of my decision making. So, and I communicate quite well with my team too. So as a result, um, I'm quite happy in this sector. Uh, partly because the variety of roles that I have to play and also the, the diverse experience that I gain from interacting with people overseas when traveling and students and colleagues as well. And I would assume you also engage still with private sector, with government. You've yes. got your experience there, yes. which I personally always find interesting as an academic. You've got a little bit more freedom, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but you still engage with these sectors, of course, to, sit, to uh, give them advice, to work with them, actually also to... Uh, learn from them because yes. the students in the end will also end up there. Yes. Huh? Yeah. And that's actually that's also an important part of your role, right? Yes. To, to develop these kinds of partnerships with these kinds of organizations. Yes, exactly, Peter. One of my main roles is external relations. So yes, yeah. I do not just work with other partner universities for exchanges and study abroad programs to improve their students' experience. But also I do work a lot with government sectors uh, and key stakeholders as well as uh, NGOs and particularly industry because, you know, industries is very important for our students partly because we do place them for their internship. They provide graduate opportunities and that connection between industry and us academy is really important because then we do not live in our ivory tower. We do know what's actually happening, transitioning in the industry, in the economy, and taking the information back to the university and using our curriculum, using our education to then train our next generation of leaders who are employable, uh, employment ready when they graduate. And, and I think that's really important. So if you think back uh, when you were students, you of course had dreams, yeah? how, how would your career, what your career path would be. Yeah. Yeah? Is it true that it turned out a little bit more different than yeah. yeah, that you predicted things in a way and, and, and the reality was a little bit different? Is, is, is yeah. that how it unfolded? Yeah, I'm, in fact, it's very interesting. When I was a young kid, I always dreamed of becoming a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, you know, look at me now, I, I, 
I'm so different from a lawyer. But my point is that sometimes dreams don't always turn out the way that you want it to be. And as you can see, just now I already told you, I work from in many different sectors, you know, over a period of time in order to find the real profession that I like. And I think that's quite important because you need to explore, you need to do different things in order to find out what you really, what really makes you tick in that sense. So yeah, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. Now I'm, I'm a senior academic in, in, in a higher education in James Cook, Singapore. Uh, it did not turn out just like this. I have friends who wants to be a doctor and he's still a doctor now, 40 years later. So it is a quite a different path from what I imagine out. But I think it is a very good way of really finding out what you love. No, I agree with you. I, I think actually, I hope we've got some of our students listening, uh, that this is, I think, quite common. You need to yeah. find out certain things. You go, you try out different things, and then you need to, at some point, you need to invest yourself in what you really like and, and give it your all. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but in your career, you've, you've been in so many different places, uh, done research there in leadership roles. What are some of the places that stand out? Uh, because you've been in developed countries, like you, you said, Switzerland. You've worked a long time actually in China. Mm -hmm. uh, you worked with in Africa. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the, the, the things that stand out in, in your experience in these, these countries? Um, I would say... In terms of experience, um, let's talk about traveling versus traveling for research versus actual working. Mm. Um, one of the most, uh, you know, very uh, big and not traumatized but very impressionable kind of first experience I had in Africa was actually in Angola. I mm. went there for research, uh, looking at the Chinese investments in Africa. And that was just at the beginning where China is really, you know, uh, strongly moving into Africa in terms of investment. And at that time, Angola just came out of the Civil War as well. So it was quite a dangerous time to visit because mm -hmm. security is still a bit not very stable. Um, what really struck me, that was the first African country I've been to in the African continent. Angola, you know, not the best choice, right? Because people usually go South Africa, Botswana, Kenya, because it's more developed, Ghana, and safer. But for me, it was a real eye-opener because... It just showed me how unequal the world is, mm. how mm. we as a more developed nation or from a more developed world, when you look at the poverty, the, the, the living standards, the way people live there, um, the kind of environment that they have to survive in, that really struck me in terms of, you know, you know this is not the right world that we should be cultivating mm -hmm. in that sense, the huge income gap. I'm staying in a $500 US room, partly because it's secured. You, it's very difficult to find secured uh, compounds in Angola during that time. And right outside the hotel compound, you have hundreds of homeless moms with their young babies selling a couple of bananas to make a living and literally was just sleeping outside at the wall. So for me, that really struck me and that, that possibly is one of my most important turning point in terms of what kind of research I want to focus, what kind of contribution I want to bring to the world, the kind of impact that I think me as a person as well as my job should do. So that's where I really start to really, you know, delve into 
trying to educate our next generation to make this world a more just and fair one in terms of income, in terms of equality, equity, inclusion, etc., etc. And that's where I, also that partly fits into my sustainability role as well. And that's why I, I, I really very much focus on SDGs goals in terms of no poverty, you know, no hunger. I think that's really the most fundamental thing that we should try to resolve as a global community in today's world. Very, very interesting. <clears throat> Inequality actually is a very important aspect of sustainability. Mm. It's, it's not just the, the current setup, as you just mentioned, there eh? some countries that are so poor, and, but it's also about the future generation. Yes. Yeah? So basically the fact that we take so much is sort of not equal, not fair to the coming generations. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit more about your interest in, in these areas, environmental issues and sustainability. So... What are some of the key things that you're interested in? What have you done in your research or in your activities that contribute to that area? Can you share a little bit with us? Yeah. Um, it is quite interesting because sustainability is so broad, right? And, mm -hmm. and in fact, I sort of knew I was, I was very much inclined in this area, partly because I was a top geography student when I was in secondary school. And then subsequently, my master's and PhD is also in geography, which is quite interesting. It's, it's, it's not quite I thought that it would be, but somehow fate and serendipity just brought you to the same direction, same anger. So now I am a political ecologist, I call myself. I look at how politics determine the use of the environment, and obviously that determines the outcome in terms of a more just world environmentally, socially as well. So, so those are the things that I'm really, really interested in. And that's why my research is very much focused on things like energy justice, renewable energy for climate change, better climate environment, uh, very much looking at green investments and corporate social responsibility because I always believe that a lot of the challenges that we have today in terms of climate change and sustainability stemmed from the business and in order to make the world a better place, we have to work closely with the industry, with the businesses, to really find solutions, either through innovations or technology, um, to make this world a more inclusive and fairer one, not just for businesses, but for all the other stakeholders. And that's where the social part of the sustainability comes in. So this is really my passion now in terms of what I'm trying to do here, trying to push as a university chief sustainability lead, as well as in terms of education. And obviously working with other chief sustainability officers in Singapore as well, we are building a very strong network trying to push this agenda forward uh, uh, for these SDG goals. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Often people say sustainability is something that we need to strive for, but it's a goal that's there maybe in the long term. Think mm. about climate change, where we often talk about we need to achieve something by 2050. Yeah. Huh? So what's your message to those people that say that, or those businesses? What are the reasons to really focus on that now? What, what you just now mentioned sustainability is a goal of, like, for example, 2050. I would argue against that. I would say sustainability is not a goal. There is no end goal. Sustainability is a journey that we all have to take because we all start from such different starting point and we don't end at the same finishing point because we cannot take into anticipation what's going to happen in 2050. Maybe in 2050, being carbon neutral or, or, or carbon free is really not possible at all because the damage has been done, we have gone beyond the tipping point. So my point is that sustainability is a journey. The target post will keep shifting. Yeah, 
what we think might be feasible today in 2050 might not be. So I would encourage all stakeholders, including the businesses, that let's put in a multiple, a multitude of contingency plan. You know, building a, finding a second Earth is not possible. I know Elon Musk is trying to do that, you know, go to Mars and, and this. But I, I think that's really quite impossible. So we really need to think very carefully, you know. If 1.5 is not possible, then, then what, what's our backup plan? You know, what is really our backup plan? And we have to start thinking about this now because a lot of the discussion has always been, okay, let's achieve this target by this year. What if we can't do it? Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't mean to be pessimistic. No, no, but I'm, I know also <laughs> you, you actually work with, uh, with a lot of businesses. Uh, you engage with them a lot. Yeah. So, so um, <clears throat> how, how would you, what, how do you look at their perspective on sustainability? Yeah. I mean, this is an area I'm also passionate about. Eh? And I always tell my students now, if we would have to believe what the businesses tell us, mm. they all say they're working on sustainability. We, do, you should, we shouldn't have these big problems. Yes. Eh? So yes. Is, what, what do you see in terms of the business perspective? Do you mm. think the urgency is there? But not just the urgency. I think there's a big, big market for them also. So there's a lot, a lot of opportunities in sustainability. Yes. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think there are some companies, the bigger ones, really very uh, cluent in terms of not just the urgency, but mm. also the opportunities. They are really clued in. And, and the compliance part is also quite challenging because, you know, there, there are some companies who are really doing it because they believe in it. They believe their business should be doing social good and they're very passionate about it. They, they really invest in it. It's not greenwashing. And then you have the other companies who are doing it because it's compliance issue. The government says they have this ruling that you have to do this or, you know, the exchange board saying that, you know, there's compliance issue that you have to comply and doing X, Y, Z, you know, the, ticking the box thing. So for those, as a result, you can see it, it, it can be quite superficial and greenwashing. Um, my take is that I'm really, really concerned. Those, the big companies, at least they are pretty much, they have the resources, even if they might not fully bought in, be bought in, they still have the resources to do it. I'm really, really concerned about the small and medium enterprises in today's world. They form up probably 90% of the supply chain in terms of providing goods to bigger, bigger company. And that's where we see the real challenges and issues are because they do not have the resources to invest in, in a good sustainability framework, if not strategy. They do not have the knowledge or training in order to implement it and to address the challenges that might be coming up during the process of implementation. And the last thing is really getting the buy-in of the community. You know, sustainability is not a top-down thing where the CEO say, okay, we are doing sustainability now, we gotta achieve X target by 2050, let's all come and just implement it, yeah? It, it's, it's not just one person's mandate or one country's mandate. It is a whole community, whole company, whole world's mandate in order to make this work. You know, we can do all, we cannot use all the recycled plastic now into, in Singapore. We, we can pay five cents for them, whatever. But at the end of the day, if we have countries who are using millions of plastic bags, washing up to the shore, destroying the ocean, yeah, I, <clears throat> but what are some of the ways forward? You already outlined some key things. In general, I would say there's 
some people who think that it's about technology, it's about technological change, we need more advanced technologies, we need to implement technologies. Some others say, you know, technology is not going to get us there, but technology to some extent led us to some of these problems. Yeah. It's about behavior. Yes. So it's about us changing our behavior in terms of consumption, energy consumption, materialism. A third is, it's about institutions, it's about the rules and regulations, it's about, huh, how, how, what, what, we need to develop a good framework that, so that people can and businesses can follow certain rules, become aware of what they need to do, also get forward-looking targets that they need to focus on. Mm. What is it that you think is, is critical there? Or do you think it's, it's a mixture of these three? I would say it is a mixture of these three, but I would say the behavioral part is probably the most important. You know, you can have government coming up with very harsh laws and regulations. Yeah. I have seen some countries have beautiful environmental regulations enacted in their institution or in, in, in the regulations in the legal framework of a country. But there's no implementation. Right? And there's a this this gap between good regulations versus good implementation. If you don't have good implementation, you can have the most beautiful environmental climate change and emissions law, but nothing's going to work. And how does good implementation comes in? It's with knowledge, education, and shifts in behavior, exactly. But again, let me take a step back and say, I'm not trying to tell the world, please don't eat strawberries from Australia, please don't because of food miles, please don't use any plastic because of the damages. I'm not trying to make all of us into a saint. It's quite impossible, right? Because we, there is, no matter what we do, how, what kind of, we need to consume, and once we consume, there is an impact on the environment. My point is, make very conscious choice of our consumption pattern, right? If there are little things we can tweak in order to make that impact, let's do it. Don't wait for the person next door. I'll wait for Peter. You, you, I can eat all the beef you want. You help me, you don't eat beef, okay? Or, you know, marry a vegan and say, good, my job is done, you know, my family household consumption has gone down, etc. So, so that's, that's what I'm really trying to drive at, the behavior, the shift in the mindset, you know. So <clears throat> I think it's about options mm. and it's about cost of options. And then, of course, behavior is connected to that, uh, we all know. Can you share a little bit with us? some of the things that you think we can do to practice this more, and, and maybe you've got some examples of your own. How, how do you practice some of these aspects of sustainability? Oh. One of my job is to travel, and I feel very bad about it, because carbon emissions from flights and aviation is one of the highest in terms yeah. of, yeah, it's quite impactful. So one of the things I do practice is to buy carbon credits for my travel. Small little thing you can do, but it does make, Slight impact. Slight, I'm not saying it's huge impactful, yeah? And sometimes people also criticize carbon credits. You do not, you do not know where it goes, right? Where, where is money going? You know, it's like, it says it's supposed to be helping this Indonesian forest, but how do we know that it's really happening? So, so that's one thing I do. Um, giving people the benefit of doubt that this is truly happening, going to the right projects, etc. The other thing is, of course, trying to drive a community change. As This is where I'm really seeing it works in, in James Cook University, Singapore. In fact, we are, you know, me and my working group, we are so excited. There's so many, we've come up with so many ideas. In fact, we're going to install solar panel 
on the roof finally after a long negotiation bidding process, you know, and, and the students are really excited about it. And then we're also going to, we've just bought a plastic recycling machine, which is managed and will be led by the students. They are going to collect uh, plastics, you know, good quality plastics, and use the machine to recycle them into uh, JCU, uh, uh, what do you call that, uh, um, souvenirs that could be given out. So what we are doing is that we are taking plastic out of the environment, but repurposing them in order to make sure that they are not just being wasted into, what do you call that, incinerators and things like that. So, so these are the things that I think is really exciting, the community moving everybody along together and getting everybody excited about it, doing the slight, small nudges in terms of behavioral change and getting that message out there. That's great. I think these are very good initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> are there some other things that you hope to see in, area, in the area of sustainability? Are there examples that you've, you've talked to businesses are there some of the things that you say, hey, this is really promising. I think we should may try to move that forward. Can you give, do you have an example like that? I would say the thing that, that got me really excited is really how, how companies and, and stakeholders are using technologies and innovation to really make that, not step change, but big leap in that sense. So there are many examples, and I've been to many conferences and workshops that actually shows that how technology could take carbon out of the environment and inject it into cement. That's one very interesting one. So in fact, you're reducing carbon use when manufacturing cement, but you are capturing the carbon and infusing it into the cement to improve the material uh, uh, quality of that, that production. So very innovative, very fascinating things happening out there. Everybody should go out and seek out all these, uh, uh, what do you call that, uh, startups, because that's where you, always this exciting idea comes from. And I think it's also nice to be in Singapore, where a lot of these things are also happening. Yes. Um, let, we're almost at the end of our podcast. Yeah. <clears throat> if you were able to travel back in time, huh? you've got a long um, uh, experience already, but what advice would you give your younger self, let's say your 21-year-old? Eh? So what are the things that you think you might want yeah. to have done differently? Yeah. Boys are bad. Smoking and drinking is a waste of time and money. Um, but seriously, I'm, I'm just kidding, seriously. You need to explore. You need to find your passion uh, by doing many different things um, in order to really, you know, because I always believe if you're happy doing what you're doing, it's not a job, it's not work, it's a lifestyle, okay? So finding that passion, exploring different things, you know, talk to people, interact with new cultures, that's the most important thing, okay? And that's exactly what I did. Yes, I boys and smoking and drinking too, but I would say, I'm pretty happy with my 21-year-old self because that's where it brought me today. Not in a direct trajectory. I, I did have a lot of bumps and turns and, and knocks and, you know, getting into trouble myself. But it got me where I am and who I am today. So I would say, find that passion. Thanks, uh, May. That, I mean, these are wonderful insights and it's been a really good discussion. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Um, Maybe if, if people want to, to see a little bit more about you, uh, are there some online, uh, can they find you online somewhere? Yeah. 
Uh, yes, very easily. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So just add me onto your LinkedIn and we can start a conversation from there. I regularly post in terms of what we do as a university and also what I do as in my job and, and all the exciting places I go to. So okay. see you in LinkedIn. <laughs> thank you so much. They and, didn't pay uh, me for advertisement, okay? <laughs> thank you all for listening and yeah. I hope you will join us for our next podcast in the near future. Yes. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Thank Thanks. you. Bye, Thanks. Bye, guys. May. Cheers.